How many of us, or how many of you, could be Joseph? What do you think? If you were actually in that position, could you be Joseph? Yes? No? I mean, obviously we all want to say yes. But if we were faced with a challenge, would we say yes? I don't know. I'd like to think so. Indefinitely, given what we profess to believe, I'd like to think that we would. Now, what's interesting is the story of, of Joseph is in Genesis. It's before Israel. It's before the law. It's before God makes clear his expectations of his people. There's no law. All that God tells Abraham is to trust that he will have a son and that that son will one day make him a great nation. And then we have Isaac. And Isaac is the son he waited for for many years. Then Isaac has two sons, Esau and and Jacob. And Jacob, the younger son, receives the blessing and has 12 sons, one of whom is Joseph. But nowhere in there is there any expectation of how these people should live. There's no expectation of what it looks like to be part of this family and community of God, the chosen people. Simply put, they just were the chosen people. But somehow these guys and their families grew into the type of people that God had called them to be. Now what's interesting is we get to the New Testament and Jesus is very clear to his followers about what it looks like to be a member of his kingdom. He makes it very clear to us what it looks like to be someone who follows him. But not only do we have Jesus that we can look at, we can look at throughout the Bible these characters like Joseph. Now what's interesting about Joseph is I think he's one of the few people in the Bible who don't have any negative things said about him. Maybe the most negative thing is that he told his brothers his dreams. But think about it. David has bad negative things that happen about him. Samson, we go down the line. Um, Samuel, Paul, the disciples, but not Joseph. Joseph knew how to love his enemies. Now Jesus, in Luke chapter 6, begins to tell his disciples and those following him what it looks like to be a member of his kingdom. And he tells them this by teaching. Now we looked at this a little bit last week. We looked at what we said, remember, the Beatitudes for Luke. But this week, Jesus shifts what he's talking about. So if you want to take out your Bibles and turn to uh, Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 38. We are going to be looking at this together. And in your pew Bible, that's uh, page 895. 
Page 895. So Luke chapter 6, verses 27 is where we begin. So this is how Jesus opens this next line or this next phase of what he's teaching. He says, But to you who are listening, I say, Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. In these two verses, what Jesus does is he summarizes for his followers what it looks like to be a member of his kingdom. And what he's actually doing is describing what I want to call kingdom love. To follow Jesus and to be a member of his kingdom is about kingdom love. And this is what Jesus tells us. He says, kingdom love requires loving hard people in hard places. Think about Joseph. He had to love his brothers in a position in which he had the power of Egypt at his back. And Pharaoh is not going to question what he does. Joseph's brothers aren't Egyptians. There's no reason for Pharaoh to notice anything that happens. Kingdom love requires loving hard people in hard places. So what Jesus does after he tells his disciples, love your enemies as yourself, is he begins to show them and talk to them about certain situations in which this happens. So verse 29, he starts by giving them some situations about loving people. In verse 29, he starts, he says, If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. You do to others as you would have had them do to you. So this first expression is familiar to us. It's so familiar that it's become an expression in our world. We talk about turning the other cheek. And we say that and we mean that we want you to show kindness to this person even though they haven't been kind to you. So we know this expression from our language and our communication with one another, but what does it actually mean to turn the other cheek? Does it mean what we think it means? From Luke's gospel, we can't get a full picture of what Jesus is teaching, but if we look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 39, where he also talks about this, uh, where Matthew has this uh, teaching recorded, this is what Matthew says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek... Turn to them the other cheek also. So what Matthew tells us is it's the right cheek. So why is this important? So if you're slapping someone with your right hand, how do you slap their right cheek? If you, if you do this, right, it's going to hit them on the left. So a right cheek slap requires you to backhand someone with the back of your hand and to slap them this way. And in the first century, slapping someone like that wasn't so much a sign of aggression and fighting, but it was an insult. It was slapping someone with your, the backhand on the left cheek was an insult. And 
What it did was told someone that they were less important than you, and it brought them shame. So what Jesus tells his disciples is, is someone shames you by slapping your left cheek. He's like, what I want you to do is to offer the other one too. Now, what that would require them to do is to forfeit the legal benefits put into place in the Jewish system for people who were mistreated in this way. So if you were shamed by someone for this, you might have a legal case against them. But what Jesus is telling his disciples is, is he's saying, reject the whole system. Forget about the whole honor shame of being slapped and what that means you can get from someone else. Your honor doesn't come from your fellow Israelites. It comes from me and your status in my kingdom. So you know what? He said, if they slap you on the left cheek and they challenge you in your status, go ahead and just offer the other one. See if they're willing to accept your challenge to what they're saying about you. So this isn't a rejection. This isn't about rejecting um, or not fighting back. It's about rejecting a whole system of belief. It's about rejecting the whole system of honor and shame that was how people lived in the first century. Now Jesus doesn't just tell his disciples to reject the system, but he also tells them to challenge and reject cultural norms. So the other thing that he says is he says, if someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt for them. Now we know that in the first century within Israel, you could take someone's outer garment as a collateral for a loan or some sort of agreement or some sort of issue. But you weren't supposed to take all their clothing because then they might be cold and they might not be wearing anything. And that would also bring them shame. But what Jesus says is, you know, if they want your shirt, just give it to all of them. Give them everything. So again, what is Jesus doing? He's telling his disciples to reject the cultural norms and to go above and beyond the expectations of those people around you. So what he's really doing with these two first statements is Jesus is telling his disciples and his followers that he wants them to rethink how they interact with other people. He's saying, you live within this system and this system thinks this is okay and this isn't. He's like, I want you to rethink all of it. I want you to rethink what it looks like to be an Israelite who lives under the law of God. Because I'm going to tell you what it looks like to truly live the way God wants you to live. And this is what he says in verse 30, which makes this even more clear. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. So until this point, Jesus, through verse 30, has been talking about what do you do when someone does something to you? How do you react when someone wrongs you? But now in verse, the, verse 31, he changes it. Now he says, do to others as you would have them do to you. So it's not just about a cultural shift. It's not just about reacting differently when someone wrongs you. It's also about how you react with other people. How do you treat people? There's no doubt that Jesus expected his followers 
to rethink how they interacted with other people. And it was all about kingdom love. And what Jesus is telling his disciples in these first couple verses is that kingdom love requires loving people in hard places. When they've shamed you and all you want to do is get back at them and get your honor back, that's a hard place to love someone. Or they've taken something from you and instead of accepting it, you give more. That's a hard place to love someone. And to do unto others as you would want them to do to you. And the only time that's hard is in the hard places, right? Whenever you're forced to make a decision, how should I treat this person? Well, Jesus says, I want you to do unto others as you want them to do to you. It's not enough for us to live up to our cultural expectations about what is good and not good. As followers of Jesus, we need to live by a different standard. And this is the standard of kingdom love. And kingdom love requires us to love people in the hard places. But Jesus doesn't stop here. He continues at verse 32. <clears throat> he says, If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. Love them. And if you do good to those who are, who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those for whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. So now what Jesus does is he sets up what's called a foil. So this is a literary term, or I, I don't know. But a foil is, within this story, there's the sinners, and then there's the people who do kingdom love. And he says the sinners are just simply everyday people. So sinners in this sense is just the people who aren't part of the kingdom. Now those are what people do as expectations of the culture. Now the foil means that, that Jesus is going to compare his followers to these people. And he's going to show how they're so different. Anyone can love someone who they know will love them back. Anyone can lend money to someone they know will pay the money back. Anyone can do good to someone who's done good to them. That's not kingdom love. But this is how Jesus describes kingdom love in verse 35. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Not only does kingdom love require us to love people in hard places, kingdom love requires loving hard people. So what Jesus talks about with the sinners is what's what I would call calculated love. Love that's easy to calculate if it'll benefit us and pay off in the end. But kingdom love isn't about being calculated. It's about being selfless and offering ourselves to people regardless of how we think they might respond. It's about loving the people who we don't like, the people who don't treat us well, and the people who don't return the love that we give them. 
Kingdom love requires, requires loving hard people. Kingdom love requires loving hard people in hard places. This is life in the kingdom of God. So what is good about doing this? Where is the benefit? Well, Jesus is going to talk about that. In verse 37, he continues. He says, Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. So he talks about being forgiven because you forgive. And he says, Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. So what Jesus is talking about here is he's saying, God will treat you the way that you're treating other people. You get what you have coming. But what's more interesting is he says, forgive and you will be forgiven. That's the only positive thing he says. The other ones are negatives. Do not do this, do not do this, do not do this. But forgive. So how is it that we can love hard people in hard places? <clears throat> I think it begins with forgiveness. Often the reason we can't love people is because there's something about them that we haven't forgiven. It's easier for us to judge and condemn other people and to tell them what they've done wrong. But it's not easy for us to forgive those people when we know they've done wrong to us. But to love people with kingdom love, we need to show them forgiveness. 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 And when we forgive, then we're able to love. And kingdom love requires loving hard people in hard places. And it is hard to forgive someone that you feel like has wronged you and they have maybe not asked for forgiveness. They maybe haven't shown that they're regretful and remorseful for what they've done. But it's about forgiving. Because when we forgive, this is what Jesus says, Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now all this, this sounds confusing, but all it simply means is that if you give love and forgiveness... Or if you live a life that strives to love hard people in hard places, then love and forgiveness will come back to you. You will receive more fully than you give what it is that you're giving to other people. So we think about profit, investment, and returns. If you're investing love and forgiveness, your returns will be love and forgiveness so much greater than you would realize. But this becomes hard when we think about it in real life. <clears throat> but I think it also makes sense for us. So think about if you hold a grudge against someone. Who does the grudge actually affect more? Does it affect the person you're holding it against or does it affect you? Now, it probably affects both of you. But now if the person who you're holding the grudge against has come up to you and forgiven you, or not forgiven you, showed their remorse and 
and apologized and told you, you know what, I was wrong in this situation. Now, if they've done that, that person has been released from what they've done. What I mean by that is they've done everything in their power to reconcile the wrong they've done to you. Now, if you hold a grudge against that person, the only person that grudge affects is you. So when you don't forgive, it affects you more than the person you're not forgiving. And the thing is, even if this person hasn't asked for forgiveness, hasn't shown you that they're remorseful, the only power they have over you is the power that you're holding against them. If you release that and forgive that person, the power is gone. And what does that bring? That brings you freedom. Kingdom love requires hard people in hard places. And when we find this freedom in forgiveness, we understand what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. The place where we're free from our sins, when we're free to be in a close, committed, connected relationship with other people and with God. The only thing that, that holding things against other people does is bind us to that. To that sin and that brokenness. But freedom through kingdom love, through forgiveness, shows us the future of the kingdom of God. And it shows us the restoration and the connection that God wants to bring to our world. Kingdom love requires loving hard people in hard places. No one said it was going to be easy. But Jesus says if you live this way and you love this way, people will notice and the world will be changed. Now I understand that it's hard to live this way. There's people in our lives that have hurt us deeply and there might be reasons why we haven't wanted to face those scars. Usually the hardest places and the hardest people to love are for a reason. So I'm not going to tell you that this is easy or that it's something that we can get good at overnight. Or even if it's something that we can completely accomplish in this life. But the ideal that we should live after is loving people in hard places because kingdom love requires that of us. <clears throat> so where can we begin this journey? I think we can begin by thinking about the people in our lives that we might need to forgive. The forgiveness might be mutual. But even when it's mutual, there's only so much that we can do. But we can still do our part. We can do our part. And that's what's important. Release yourself. Show kingdom love. Love hard people in hard places. And release yourself and find the freedom in forgiveness. Because kingdom love requires it. And not only does it require us to love the people in our lives who have hold things against us, it's about loving all people and the way we think about people and the way we interact with the world. 
But if there's one place where we can all grow to benefit, it's in our immediate relationships with people around us. That's where we can start. To seek forgiveness, to let go of what we're holding against other people. That is God grips on us. Kingdom love is loving hard people. Is require, kingdom love requires loving hard people in hard places. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you've called us to a standard that none of us <clears throat> can live up to. Not on our own, at least. Through the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells in us, may we begin to work on those deep, dark convictions and challenges in our lives that hold us captive. May we be able to face those challenges and forgive the people that we need to forgive. And may we also go to the people who we need to ask forgiveness from. May we release ourselves of those things too. May we seek restoration and deep commitment with one another and with you through kingdom love. The love that requires us to love hard people in hard places. But may you empower us to do so, that we can become more like your son. And so that we can become a place where people encounter the kingdom of God when they walk into the midst of our church building. And they're a part of our community. We ask this on your son's name who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit. One God, now and forever. Amen.